And hello and welcome to this week's edition of Novak Now. I'm Jake Novak here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Again, you can follow me at JakeJakeNY. That is my Twitter handle. And um, as things change so incredibly rapidly uh, right now, I think uh, following Twitter is not a bad idea. Following the right people on Twitter, I hope I'm one of those people, uh, is, the right, is, a, is a good way to go, a way to kind of keep ahead of some of the things that you want to stay on top of. Um, obviously, the major topics right now, because it is such a major story in both the United States, Israel, and of course the whole world, the number one story being the coronavirus spread. And there have been things that have changed since last week's edition of Novak Now, of course. And there are things that are encouraging and things that are frightening and all those, and, and, and all those factors. As I speak to you now, New York, the New York area, New York, New Jersey, metropolitan area is getting closer and closer to coming under a full type of shutdown. Um, schools are closed on both Long Island, in my case, for my children, and also New York City. Uh, they are now in New York City asking restaurants or telling restaurants they can't be open for other than takeout and delivery. I think that that's going to come to Nassau County as well for Long Island. I'm sure it's parts of New Jersey. Teaneck, the, the town of Teaneck, which of course is a very large modern Orthodox Jewish community, in addition to being a major suburb of New York City, period, is uh, basically under a self-quarantine for the entire town. Uh, these are all major, major developments that have been a part of this narrative that's grown out in the last four or five days, which I think is an important one, which is the idea that we can't completely eradicate coronavirus right away. We can't stop the spread completely. But by quarantining and keeping our social distancing and doing a number, uh, a number of other things, which, which we'll talk about, we can flatten that rising curve of new cases and deaths. That's the point that everyone is trying to make right now. And I know there's a debate among people, and some people I very highly respect, who believe that the way that this is being treated right now from a point of view of shutting things down, not the social distancing stuff, not the keeping clean, there's nobody sane who's saying, don't wash your hands. There's nobody sane who is saying, hey, don't hang out and, in close proximity to a bunch of people all the time. Nobody is saying that. That's, that's really good news, by the way, that there's nobody kind of pushing back on that. But there are some people saying that all the shutting down of the shutting down of everything, schools, the shutting down of a lot of businesses, the shutting down of restaurants other than takeout and delivery. There are a lot of people who still feel that that is an overreaction. And I understand that argument from a lot of different levels. But here's the thing. It's going to happen anyway. The rising number of cases, which has been the case here in the United States for several days now, and sadly I think will be the case for at least another few days, and probably more than that. And all the things that we're hearing about from other countries. I mean, we now have a death toll in Italy of 1,800 people just in Italy, which is a relatively small country in the, as far as total population is concerned. So for them to have 1,800 deaths right now compared to China, which had, I, I guess, around four or 5,000, just goes to show what a massive percentage of death Italy is dealing with for people who have had that, have the virus. So this is a serious problem. And Europe has become, as, as the World Health Organization has called it, Europe has become the epicenter now of where the most serious results of the virus are taking place. So when we see that kind of stuff and we hear that kind of stuff, 
people are going to start shutting down as far as taking trips, as far as going out to restaurants and bars. Now, I know there's lots of, I've heard lots of stories about New York City just over the weekend in Manhattan where people were still packing the bars and restaurants. But that eventually was going to stop. It was going to, it's already, it had already begun in other places to stop. So my point is the economy is going to take this hit anyway. So if we believe, and again, nobody's saying is saying that shutting these things down won't at least work to stop the spread. If we believe that shutting down our social contact, shutting down schools and, and, and the like will at least stop the spread in some way, and this is going to happen anyway as far as a tough impact on the economy, I think we're in this situation where we have to say we have to do it. We have to do it even though I agree a lot of the economic pain might not be 100% necessary, but from a point of view of being safe healthcare-wise, who can, who can really strongly argue against it? It's going to happen anyway, which is why I've been arguing for, and you can read my latest column on CNBC.com, I've been arguing for the last few days for a nationwide, basically, economic shutdown to go along with our healthcare shutdown that we're that not a health, not a shutdown of our healthcare services but a shutdown of our social interactions our shutdown of our schools things like that and I, and I don't say this with flippantly i understand that there are people who are going to be hurt and listen i'm personally going to be hurt economically i can't think of anyone who isn't going to be from such a thing but right now Everyone needs to be in a kind, as much of an equal timeout as possible. An economic timeout is really what I'm calling for. Probably two weeks, but maybe just a week. I think the financial markets should close for two or three days, as they have in other crises in, in the past. Whether it was for Hurricane Sandy, whether it was for the 9-11 attacks where, they, where the markets closed for about a week, whether it was the bank holiday that President Roosevelt ordered during the Depression. A lot of the Depression-era stuff that Franklin Roosevelt did was temporary window dressing nonsense <laughs> because and we know that because the second it stopped the second some of this phony stimulus stopped from the government for example in 1937 the country went right back into recession but psychologically roosevelt did a very good job during the depression i believe that psychologically that was really his great triumph he got people to focus on trying to make things better he stopped a little bit of that mental panic, even if he couldn't stop the real economic pain for an extended period of time. Not until the war broke out, World War II broke out, did the, did the United States truly have an economic, from a mathematical, factual basis, did the United States truly economically recover. But psychologically, the United States recovered much quicker than that, thankfully. And a big reason for that were some, was the way that President Roosevelt was talking to the public, but also there were a couple of policies that were not just window dressing and silliness. And the biggest example of that was the bank holiday. When there was a run on the banks and people were worried that the banks were going to completely fail in 1933, shortly after he became president, Franklin Roosevelt ordered a bank holiday, which meant you couldn't go to the bank for about a week. And that had such a strong psychological effect on the country because the president said, we're going to give these banks a week off we're going to work on shoring them up. And after that week, we'll be in a much better position. And the public believed that. The public took that to heart. And an amazing thing happened. In the course of a week, with that week off, the people who had been lining up at the banks 
before the bank holiday to take their money out, came back to the banks after the bank holiday to put their money back in. So these are the kinds of things that taking a little bit of a time out can do. Um, The Federal Reserve has done some extraordinary things to help shore up and keep the economy from suffering the worst possible fate from all the coronavirus economic shutdowns. And I understand, folks, I haven't really gone through the list of all the things that have been hurt by the coronavirus, even before, even before we got into more of a national sort of fear about this. The airlines have been suffering mightily just from their reduced traffic to China, which started really in January, right? Remember that airlines basically in this country, with a few exceptions, the JetBlues and the, and the Southwest Airlines, they're a little bit different. But most of the airlines in this country and all over the world make their money from business travel. There's a reason why those business class seats are expensive. They, people have to travel around the world for business. The airlines know that. They want to cater to that audience, but they, it doesn't come cheap. And when China alone, which is, you know, the world's second biggest economy and such a major part of the world's economy, started to become a place people didn't want to go to, even in January, even before the president banned flights coming in from China, that started to have a big effect on the airline industry. And now it's much worse. Now people don't want to go on planes, even within the United States. A lot of people don't because they feel that they're going to, if one person on that plane has the virus, they, you know, a lot of people are going to catch it. So that's one industry that's going to have a huge problem recovering from this. It's going to take them a long time. It could happen somewhat dramatically considering the hit they're taking now, but there's going to be some problems in the airline industry. Uh, Movies. I mean, the the Hollywood Hollywood might lose a tremendous amount of money from people not going into movie theaters. However, they'll have a nice backstop because almost all the major studios have streaming services now and with people and kids not going to school and all that. I think Netflix and Hulu and Disney Plus are going to have a pretty good numbers in the next couple of weeks. But my point is that there's going to be some pain here that has started even before the, the peak of coronavirus fear really started to hit, which I would say is this month. I mean, we're, we're now in the middle of March. I don't think that coronavirus fear really hit all 50 states and really made made the U.S. consciousness until this month for everyone. And so that is the the, the pain that's going to be felt, that's already being felt in the economy. But the Fed has been doing a tremendous amount of work to make sure it isn't the worst. And just Sunday, the Fed cut interest rates basically to zero and also injected a $700 billion of quantitative easing, which is a way of basically keeping liquidity in the economy, keeping that money flowing throughout the country. And that's just what they did on Sunday. They also did some dramatic things earlier in the week. So I think the markets need some time to really understand what the Fed has done because it's a pretty big deal. I'm not saying it's enough to fix everything. But in my opinion, the market's panic and it switches to euphoria and then it goes back to panic that is a real sign that the markets need a timeout and figure out what they're not only where we are but what they really want because i think big time investors right now are really split between either wanting to see a different kind of major policy come out of washington which you know may or may not work by the way (laughs) they might hear the policy statement that they've been waiting to hear but it doesn't mean it's actually going to to work like i said when we talked about the depression just a few moments ago. There were a lot of policies that sounded great that came out of the Roosevelt administration. Pretty much none of them worked. And by that, I mean they only, they just flooded money in from the government into certain areas, and they kept 
maybe they stopped the bleeding, but as soon as they, but they did not, in other words, make the economy strong enough on its own. In other words, it was just a dependent economy on those government programs. I mean, if that's what you're creating, then you're not really helping the economy, not long term. Psychologically, however, the Roosevelt administration did some fantastic things. And that's what I think psychologically, at the very least, the market needs to understand what's been done for the economy in just the last few days. And I don't think they're seeing that right now. And I think they need the time off. Now, if we close the markets for two or three days, that does not mean the day the markets reopen, they're going to go up. In fact, they probably will go down. But over time, I think we will have a recovery in the market that could even put us in a place better than we were before this coronavirus hit to the market happened. But to do that, the markets need to gain their perspective. And a lot of people could get hurt during that point unless we close the markets for a couple of days. I I really am strongly in favor of this. And again, you can see me uh, lay out my entire argument for it in in my latest column on CNBC.com, which is available if you just go to Jake Novak. If you go to Google and just do Jake Novak and CNBC, you'll find all my columns over all the years. But that's uh, that's the, the 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 short version, the Reader's Digest version of that of that argument that I've been making. From a health standpoint, you've heard a lot of people not only in the mainstream news media, but of course here on the Nachum Siegel Network, you've, you've heard a lot of doctors. Look, folks, this isn't a joke. It, it, there is nothing to be ashamed of about overreacting, if you think it's overreacting, about social distancing, about not going into the schools, about staying away from nursing homes. These kinds of things are important. And I think the only overreaction you can have is you just have somebody who shows no symptoms and they, and they lock themselves in a room and they're unable to come out. That, that, that would be an example of an overreaction. But as far as our usual interactions, whether it's being in a, in a crowded shul or a crowded yeshiva or whether it's going out to a restaurant or a bar that might be crowded, it, it's just not worth it. There's, there, we, we have to stay home for the most part. It doesn't mean we have to be locked into our room doesn't need to be, need to go into a panic room or an isolation chamber. In fact, I, I recommend people going out for walks outdoors if you're showing if you're so, showing no symptoms. Just don't go into a crowded area. And I thought there's a lot of crowded areas to go into these days. Um, but the the washing your hands frequently, the all that kind of stuff. There's nothing about that that's that's uh, an overreaction. That's something that people should do. I think we've debunked the idea that this is just like the flu. It's a little bit different in a lot of ways. Um, in some cases, it's less deadly. In some cases, it's more deadly. But it's spreading fast. And we have to do what we can do to flatten that, that curve of new cases. That's really the, a really good focus that people in, ha, have started to look at. Now, I want to say something encouraging about, about it. And that's, uh, there's some really encouraging words coming from Michael Levitt, who is a... U.S. Israeli Nobel laureate. He won the Nobel Prize in 2013. And Michael Levitt has been talking about, has been crunching the numbers for a long time now, actually, on the coronavirus cases. Uh, his wife is a major Chinese art collector and expert. So he goes to China, Israel, and the United States a lot. I mean, he's, he's in the real, um, as you would say, a, 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 really in the, the danger zone for, for people who, who might get the virus. He does not have any symptoms, I'm happy to say. But he started crunching the numbers very early on, coming out of China. 
And Michael Levitt looked at it and, has, and, and noticed a big spike in the numbers in early February, and then in mid-February noticed that the numbers had started to go down in both new cases and in deaths. So he is saying that, for example, Israel is doing a great job of reducing the number of coronavirus cases, and he, he's noting a slowdown. If you, again, this is about exponential stuff. So Israel right now is between 250 and 300 cases of the coronavirus, which means that for the last four or five days, we have not seen exponential growth. We've seen growth. We've seen new numbers added to the totals. But from a percentage basis, they are growing at a slower percentage every day the last couple of days, which is a tremendously good sign for Israel. And we hope that that will happen here in the United States as well. I think that we're a little further away from that. Obviously, we're a much bigger country. And the United States seems to have a couple of hotspots right now. I know of two. We know of hotspots in, 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 in Westchester and apparently in Teaneck, and I should say three. Obviously, the biggest hotspot, the biggest ground zero, worst spot right now in the United States is clearly the Seattle area. And this is very much connected to the one or two nursing homes in the Seattle area where just about all of the deaths that we've suffered here in the United States from coronavirus have occurred. Uh, I believe 50 of the 69 total deaths that we had as of the beginning of this week were from that Seattle area nursing home or nursing homes. And that is, listen, we know that elderly people are very susceptible to this virus. Clearly somebody who was, who was infected, maybe could have been a worker at one of those nursing homes, had it and you know, got into the, and, and, and spread it in, in a very, very susceptible place in just the worst possible place for, for it to happen. And we hope that that remains the biggest bad news story as far as death is concerned in, in, in the country. But when we start seeing, just to get back to what I was talking about with the markets for a second, when we start seeing the percentage of new cases slowing, in other words, we might have, just to to go through the math here, just very basically here, let's say we have 100 cases of coronavirus confirmed in the United States, and the next day it's 200. Now, that would be a 100% increase, right, because we've doubled. So now we're at 200 cases. But if the next day we have 200, we have 300 cases, Yes, we've had the same number of new cases added. It's been 100 again, but we've only had a 50% increase in cases from, from the day that we had 200 to the day that we had 300. In other words, that would be a, a, a decrease in the percentage gain day over day, even though it's the same number of total cases that increased day over day. That's what we're looking for in the United States. We're looking for decreases in the percentages because that means that exponential growth isn't happening that means some of the inf- that not every infected person is infecting somebody else again. And when we start to see that, and maybe that'll be sooner, maybe that'll be later. I'm certainly hoping it's sooner. But when we start to see that, I think that's when, first of all, the markets will start to be more stable. And I also think that's when we'll know that what we're doing to try to slow the spread is a good thing. Now, there's also, there's also an argument out there that I don't want to completely over overlook because that would be naive. There's also an argument out there that the news media and other people are trying to play up the fear and the panic and the bad news about this in order to hurt President Trump, in order to hurt his chances of getting reelected. There's a couple things I want to say about that. There is no doubt about it that a lot of people in the news media uh, would like to blame President Trump for this, and, and they do that with everything. So I'm not overlooking that. But remember, as you've heard me say here on the, on the Novak Now program on the Nachum Siegel Network, you've, said, you've heard me say this many times. 
The number one bias that the news media has, and they've got many, is the bias towards negativity, panic, fear, all that kind of stuff. If there is a negative way to look at something, the news media will very likely focus on that before anything else. And so these kinds of stories, epidemics, pandemics, are very often something that the news media looks at. And when they don't, when they overlook, when they don't make a big negative panic type story about it, then it's usually because there's been a very, very concerted effort by some people within the news media to focus on something else negative. Ten years ago or so when we had the H1N1 swine flu virus, which killed a lot of people in this country and all over the world, listen, I saw a lot of stories about it, and I saw a lot of panic stuff about it, but it didn't make the front pages back then because it was 2009 and the news media was focusing on another negative, another different neg- things that they wanted to talk about which at the time was pretty much focusing on still the financial crisis and also focusing on how healthcare was so healthcare coverage was so bad and, and, and they were really beating the drum for the eventual passage of Obamacare a year later. That was really what they were focusing on. But my point is, is that it's not always just a plot to unseat Trump, although that is something that is such a, clearly the job won at so many newsrooms across the country. But this also plays into their negative bias and their fear-mongering bias. And there's going to be a lot of websites and and television news networks that are going to get boosted viewership numbers and and boosted readership numbers if you're a newspaper. That's going to happen over these next couple of weeks. There's some that are going to be, on the other hand, there's going to be some networks that are going to be in trouble. I don't know what ESPN is going to do. Uh, if this continues, there, there's more evidence today and, and, and going into this weekend, the last past weekend, that Major League Baseball and some of these other major sporting leagues that are on hiatus right now are not going to start up so quickly. I mean, right now you have the CDC basically saying, don't do gatherings of 50 or more people for another eight weeks. So, I mean, no NBA and no NHL now, for which would that would be about nine weeks without those leagues. That would mean Major League Baseball opening day would be delayed by a month and a half. So, you know, it's not going to be great for all the news media and all the media in general. And people going into movie theaters, as I said earlier, that's going to take a hit too. And it's been taking, it's already has been taking a major hit, which maybe they'll recoup from streaming subscriptions and all that kind of thing. I want to focus a little bit more on Israel just in the last few minutes here on the Novak Now program. And we've seen, obviously, coronavirus, the number one story in Israel also, but a close second is the government coalition negotiations. And I know on the Israel show you've heard earlier today from Mayor Weingarten a lot of analysis on this. I'm not going to give as much, but I'm going to try to boil it down to a couple of things. First off, Going into the end of last week, it looked like there was a chance that the coronavirus threat to Israel, which, as Michael Levitt, Nobel laureate, has said, has started to dissipate, which is really great, although it's not, Israel's not out of the woods yet. Remember, this is a small country with a large elderly population. The coronavirus is a serious threat to Israel, even though they're only at about 250, between 250 and 300 cases for the whole country. Nevertheless, it looked like that that threat might finally bring a unity government to Israel, a government to, that, that could be formed. You know, we've had such a tremendous change from where we were two weeks ago, where Likud, I mean, that didn't change. Likud was the clear winner of the most votes in the election two weeks ago. That hasn't changed at all. In fact, they won their biggest, you know, 
majority, not, not a majority, they won their biggest number of votes separating them between the number two party, in this case, again, the blue and white party, than they had in all these three elections that we've had over the last 11, 11 months. But the anti-Netanyahu forces are very, very determined, and they've decided to try to cobble together some kind of coalition. And over the weekend, Avigdor Lieberman said he, in his seven mandates, his seven members of Knesset in his party, Yisrael Beitenu, said that they would recommend Benny Gantz and Blue and White to be the, the, the leader of the government. Which theoretically puts them at 61 seats, enough to form a government, but of course that includes the 14 Arab parties, 14 members of Arab parties in the Knesset. And that includes a lot of people who don't recognize the Jewish state, even though they're in the Knesset. And, and et cetera, et cetera. I think it's a com- tremendous illusion. It's a mirage to believe that that is a government coalition that will be able to be formed. I don't think the Israeli public will accept it, and I don't think that every member of all the other parties that would be part of that coalition will accept it. Not enough. Certainly not everyone but one. I mean, they, they, can't, they can't afford to even lose one member of any party that won't sit in, in that kind of a coalition. We call the minority coalition because the Arab parties officially wouldn't be in the, ben, the Benny Gantz coalition. I mean, it's, it's so complicated, it's not even worth going through because it's not going to happen. But it did look like the coronavirus ca- uh, situation would at some point have the effect of creating a unity government between Likud and Blue and White for at least several months, and then they could reassess after that. But Benny Gantz and Blue and White didn't want to do it because that would give Netanyahu the premiership, the prime minister position first. And half of the Blue and White party consists of never BBs. People like Yeshatid leader Yair Lapid, who will never sit in a government with, 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 with Benjamin Netanyahu under any crisis circumstance. I mean, it's really incredible. So the chances of coronavirus and the threat to Israel making adults out of some of the folks in Israel and just forming a government for the sake of the country seem to have fallen by the wayside, which is really a shame. Now, they may come back together once Blue and White realizes they really can't form a minority government with, it, with any decent support from the Israeli people. I mean, I really think you'll see protests, such as they can be with, with all these public gatherings sort of banned right now in Israel. But I think you're going to see a, a public that will not accept a minority government bolstered by 14 members of Arab parties, many of whom did not recognize the Jewish state. You just can't have that. It won't work. And uh, I'm not the only one who thinks that. You can look in the Jerusalem Post. There's some strong analysis there talking about how the, 60, the so-called 61 seats that Benny Gantz has are, you know, is an illusion, and I agree with that assessment. But, folks, coronavirus in Israel is, is not a joke, but it does seem, again, and I'm, I'm, I'm basing this on my, the, own, the numbers that I'm seeing by myself, and also from this analysis from people who are a lot smarter than I am when it comes to math, and that's Michael Levitt, the Nobel laureate, who are, who, are say, who are seeing what I'm seeing, which is that exponential growth of the coronavirus in Israel has actually stopped a, quite a while ago. Yes, the number of cases are growing, but they are slowing. Not only, I, I, actually, I'm, I'm seeing a percentage uh, uh, decrease every day, but I'm also seeing a number decrease. I mean, I'm, I'm only seeing a handful of new numbers over the last couple of days. So that is some good news and, and certainly something that I think we can follow. Israel did not lock down its entire society or put a bunch of people into a forced quarantine building or, like China did, and they still seem to be getting ahead of this right now. Now, there are some problems. 
Haredi Yeshivot are refusing to shut down, although they have agreed to use smaller classrooms and fewer people in a classroom. So I guess that's something. Although to me, I think it's, it's very frustrating that they're not following along here uh, with, with, with the program as far as keeping gatherings to a minimum. They're, they're, they're not doing as much as they can be doing. Let's hope that that changes. But they're doing something, and I think that that won't hurt. Um, they need to do more to help. But that is something that is happening, and let's hope that this continues in Israel, and then that's one thing we do want to spread to the United States. I'm Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I hope to speak to you again next week.